Welcome to the Women in Family Law podcast. I'm Hannah Markham, the chair of the association. Women in Family Law connects, encourages and promotes professional women across the field of family law in England and Wales. We offer advice, support and mentoring. And of course, these podcasts. Well, afternoon, everyone, and great to be doing another podcast this afternoon. Today, I'm joined by Paul Donovan, who's the Managing Director and Chief Economist for UBS Global Wealth Management, and he's got a lot to say. Welcome, Paul. Thanks very much for having me on, Suzanne. And I should say at this point that UBS are our main sponsors and have really supported us over the last couple of years in women in family law. So a big shout out and thanks to UBS in any event. Paul, I'm really interested to find out about how you got into your current role. So brief details of your career. I must confess, I've read your book and I know that you started as an intern in 1992. And it seems to me that you stayed at UBS all that time. But please tell us more. Yes, I I have. I mean, UBS has obviously gone through several mergers over the course of the last three decades. And so the nature of the organization has changed. But I was studying politics and economics at university. And I wanted to write uh, a thesis on the impact of the Japanese education system on political developments. But in order to do that, I needed to learn Japanese and I'm not very good at languages. So I thought, well, I'll go out, I'll work for a bank, I'll start as a Japanese economist, I'll learn Japanese, and after a few years, I'll go back to academia. And then 30 years later, I was sort of looking around and thinking, oh, I never did go back to academia, did I? Because I got sort of sucked into the job, and and it is an absolutely fascinating job. And so I've progressed within the organization, starting as a a junior Japanese economist and then moving to be a global economist. And then I headed our our economics unit in our investment bank for a while. And then back in 2016, moved over to become chief economist for wealth management, which means that I'm really sort of doing a a very global uh, 30,000 feet big picture overview, but also that I get to talk to some of the world's sort of leading entrepreneurs philanthropists, investors, central bankers. And so that, from an economist's point of view, getting that direct contact with people who are right at the coalface of the economy, absolutely fascinating. Well, that leads nicely for me to ask you, what's your typical day or do you not have such a thing as a typical day? Well, I don't really. I mean, prior to the pandemic, I was traveling a great deal because, of course, you know, I speak at conferences, I speak to clients one on one, and we're a global wealth manager. So our clients are all over the world. And so I was traveling about 10 months of the year. Now, uh, obviously, during the pandemic, although I'm about to start traveling again, the meetings have all been virtual, but it follows a broadly similar format. So I start every day by recording a podcast. In fact, I was doing podcasts before podcasts had been invented. It used to be a, something you had to dial into as a telephone recording about 20 years ago. And this is sort of a five-minute summary of this is what's going on in the day ahead. Uh, and then there's a 200-word email which sort of summarizes the, the podcast. And I've been doing that uh, over 20 years now. And so that actually takes quite a lot of preparation because you've got to go make sure you're not missing anything obvious, make sure you're covering all bases around the world. So that's a couple of hours first thing in the morning, normally from about five o'clock until about seven o'clock in the morning. And then it's pushed out on social media and, and so on. And then the rest of the day is a mix 
of really, I suppose, three things. There's, as with any job, a certain amount of administration, regulation, there's a lot of compliance involved because I've got a global role and I have to deal with that. There's preparing research, discussing research with colleagues around the world, making sure that we're on top of what's going on in the global economy. And then there's relaying all of that to our client base. And that can be direct. So talking to clients directly, it can be talking to colleagues internally who are also presenting out to our client base. It can be via the media as well. So there's a lot of things there that that are going on. And that's probably the lion's share of my day is in interacting with clients one way or another and communicating our ideas out to them. So I'm asking myself this question, how on earth did you find the time to write a book? I know you have, it's called Profit Mm. and Prejudice, the Luddites of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which I have read. Uh, What inspired you to do it? So finding the time, um, I mean, that's what long haul flights are for, um, is, you know, and with the travel, of course, you know, you do get quite a lot of, downtime, hotels and so on around the world. And so it's always something which I've um, I found very interesting to, to fill that time. The book, which is about prejudice in labor markets, was actually inspired by events around the marriage equality debate in the UK. And we were getting some really nonsensical economic arguments uh, about this and trivializing the whole issue. And so I started writing a lot about prejudice generally. I'd written about prejudice before in the labor market because it does have a big long-term economic impact. But I started, I got really angry about about how poor quality the, the debate in the media was about this. So I started writing a lot about it. Uh, and UBS, to their credit, you know, was was very keen to promote this work at a time when this was not common in the financial markets. And you know, UBS really said, no, 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 we should be we should be talking about this. Uh, and then subsequently, you know, I was doing more and more on this, and I was getting invited to speak at conferences and so on. And and so about six seven years ago, you know, the, the the sort of mania grips me, uh, that grips every economist from time to time, which is why don't I write a book on this? To which the answer is, it's an enormous amount of work, and and it'll drive you to distraction. But I started and kept going. Normally, when I write a book, it takes about a year to write. This one actually took five years, uh, and the reason is, I think the the topic is so multifaceted, it's so complex that you know, I, you end up going down lots and lots of different rabbit holes and different directions all the time. But it's a very, very complicated subject and I really wanted to do it justice. And I must say, I think you have. It would be fascinating to start off and sort of really go back to basics to ask you, how do you define prejudice? Well, economically, uh, we would distinguish prejudice from discrimination. So discrimination is simply choosing one thing in preference to another. And economists do this all the time. I mean, it's in fact the raison d'etre of the economics profession is you know, how do we make choices between you know, two alternatives? That's why economics exists. But prejudice is irrational discrimination. And that one word is why prejudice is so absolutely toxic from an economic perspective and also, of course, from a social and political perspective. And so prejudice is saying to somebody, yes, you're brilliant. You're, the, you're absolutely the perfect person to employ, but I don't want to work with a woman or I don't like gay people or foreigners are, are not welcome here. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. You're, you're not saying 
this is the person's qualification for their job and they're absolutely perfect. You're using some completely nonsense idea to uh, discriminate against somebody. And so that's what uh, prejudice is in an economic sense. And economists have been talking about this for, for over 60 years. The problem is you know, we wrap everything up in so much jargon, nobody listens to us. Uh, and so my view is that the economics profession needs to do a far better job of communicating the damage that prejudice can do in order to hopefully start to change attitudes in society. And how would you define that damage from an economic point of view? So how does prejudice harm society economically? Well, there are two really big sources of damage. So the first is that if you are going to be efficient, if you're going to be effective, if you're going to get the best standard of living that you can in a society, you need to employ the right person in the right job at the right time. And if the right person is a woman, you should be employing them. And if the right person is you know, queer or uh, an ethnic minority, you should be employing them. Of course you should. But if you're being prejudiced, by definition, you're not employing the right person in the right job at the right time because you're using irrelevant criteria. And so that will undermine efficiency and it will undermine innovation and productivity. So the first thing is prejudice prevents inclusion. And inclusion is really critical to being an efficient society. But then the second thing is about the importance of diversity and diversity of thinking. So this is around the fact that if you have got a monoculture taking decisions, you're not going to consider a problem or an opportunity from all possible angles. Because, of course, you can't. Uh, you're not going to have the variety of experience which helps with that. So if everyone sitting around the table is a white Anglo-Saxon middle-aged bald man, and I am a paid-up member of that group and all in favor of their rights, but if everyone is exactly the same, that's not going to create a robust decision-making process. And you are going to miss the opportunities, or worse, you're going to miss the risks that come about in a period of structural change. And my argument is that uh, we are going through a period of accelerated structural change when actually it becomes more and more important to have the right person in the right job at the right time and more and more important to consider these upheavals in society and the economy from all possible angles. And so if you're failing to do that, you're throwing away you know, a, a fantastic opportunity to improve standards of living for humanity, to improve environmental sustainability, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, a, it's an enormous deal at the moment. And is the accelerated change predominantly by virtue of COVID, or was, were we going through a phase of accelerated change before that in any event? We were going through the change anyway. Um, so it's what economists call the fourth industrial revolution, uh, which is about automation, robotics, artificial intelligence, digitization, which is sort of, you know, replacing compact disks with streaming. Social media as well, I think, is also part of it. But what I think the pandemic has done is, at least for certain sectors of this, accelerate that structural change. The thing about any industrial revolution is that, that everyone gets very excited about the technology because that's the, the shiny toy that everybody likes to play with. 
But in actual fact, it's not really the technology that drives the change. It's how people use the technology that drives the change. And of course, what the pandemic has done is change how we work, how we consume very, very abruptly. We were forced to change very quickly. Now, these changes would have happened anyway, the move to home working, the move to online retail. This would have happened anyway, but it's happened in a very condensed period of time, I would argue, because of the pandemic. And does being an economist make it easier to fight prejudice with facts? I think that it does because economists deliberately try and look at the world in not really a scientific way, but a fairly empirical way. We, you know, we, we depend on data and, and using data. Now, that can be a problem because data isn't always as good quality as you might think. You know, a lot of people have this touching faith that economic statistics are accurate when, in fact, they're, they're largely semi-educated guesses. But uh, I, I think economists can bring an impartiality to things that we don't, you know, we don't start with the conclusion and work backwards. We're, we're starting with the hypothesis and testing whether it is true. At the same time, I think, as I said earlier, the fact that economists all too often descend into jargon makes it more difficult to actually fight prejudice. We've got the arguments, but we dress it up in 17 mathematical equations and you know, words with four syllables in them, and no one's interested. You know, what we need to be doing is devising a TikTok dance to explain our, our conclusions, because that's what we've got to do. We've got to convince a large number of people about the, the, the reality of prejudice to help fight against it. I'm looking forward to that TikTok dance. But <laughs> what can we all do from a practical point of view to fight prejudice in the workplace, sort of to do it together and to fight individually, uh, probably bearing in mind that majority of people listening to this podcast, as you know, it's women in family law are women in the workplace. Is there anything that we can really do from a practical point of view? I think there is. Um, I think there are two related issues. So I think challenging prejudice, calling out prejudice, don't let it slide. And I know, I mean, you know, being British, I find it very uncomfortable to, to, to challenge. It's, it's not culturally something that we tend to do. And, and it's not something I necessarily feel very comfortable doing, and, and particularly when I'm dealing with people from a whole range of different cultures, sort of challenging people can be quite difficult to do. But I think it is important to try and do it because it makes people identify the prejudice, it draws attention to it, and by drawing attention to it, you can hopefully start to work towards a solution. Related to that, there's a quote from a, a, a former colleague that I use in the book from Erica Karp, who has this, I think, brilliant approach to dealing with prejudice. And she says, she always aims to make people feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that's just marvelous because you don't want people feeling very uncomfortable because if they're very uncomfortable, the barriers go up and they, they become resistant and it sort of embeds the prejudice. But if they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, what that means is that they are questioning some of their beliefs and they're feeling uncomfortable about it. That's the first step to recognizing your unconscious bias or your sort of rule of thumb prejudice, these, these inherent traits that we all have. I mean, everybody is prejudiced. Of course we all are. But the more that we, we feel a little bit uncomfortable, that means that we're questioning what's going on. And that, I think, helps. So challenging people and accepting that people are going to feel a little bit uncomfortable because of that challenge. And that's a good thing, but not so 
challenge, so uncomfortable that they're putting up the barriers. That's the right medium, I think, to fight prejudice in the workplace. And is there anything else that you would like to sort of say to us as a, a takeaway from the work you've done in this area, the things you found out whilst writing the book, anything else that you'd like to draw out for us? I think there were times writing the book when I, I got really depressed. I mean, you, the, the, I did uh, a lot of research, for example, on the white supremacist movement of the United States. And you know, after a month of doing that, I mean, it, you can imagine it's it's a very very depressing topic to have to go through and research and and so on and quite what the google algorithm thought about me i shudder to think but i think that at the end of the day a lot of the changes that we're seeing in communications in the way that we're working in social attitudes are positive we are moving in the right direction. I always take hope from the fact that when we look at things like um, the world values survey every subsequent generation exhibits less prejudice than the predecessor. So again, I would be the very last person to claim the world is perfect. I mean, you know, researching this book, it's very obvious that it's not. But I think the direction of travel is positive. And I think that it is important to remember that because we can, particularly with social media and all these other aspects, we can get sucked into a very dark place about, oh, we've got this problem, that problem, and, and we're just never going to overcome it. Well, I don't actually think that's true. It doesn't mean we can sort of relax and give up the struggle. Absolutely not. And I think that's why this constant challenge is so important. But we are, I think, moving in the right direction with regards to a more diverse and a more inclusive society. Just absolutely fascinating. I'll have to confess that I did economics A-level, almost did economics at university, but instead did law. And now I really wish I'd stayed with economics. I could listen to you for hours on this topic and I know you're incredibly busy, so I won't keep you for much longer. But I just wanted to ask you, I think we all acknowledge, particularly since and during the pandemic, that having a really good work-life balance is a good thing. So can you tell us something that you do to maintain that work-life balance? You're obviously an incredibly busy professional. Well, I, I have a number of hobbies. I have a very, very small farm. I have 20 acres. And I do quite a lot of the work on here myself. It's, it's mainly fruit trees and orchards and there's some sheep. But a lot of the work here is, I find actually very therapeutic because it's so different from what we do in the day-to-day -day job that it forces you to, to think about different things and to focus on different things. It's outdoors, it's, it's very natural. And that I, I really, really enjoy. And then for sport, uh, and I've been doing this for oh, grief almost 30 years now, my sport is boxing. And again, that's because it's very relaxing. And people say, how could you say boxing is relaxing? And I think, well, because when you step into the boxing ring, you have to focus on the here and now. You can't be letting your mind worry about you know, what the Bank of England's latest rate decision is or you know, what fiscal policy is going to happen in the United States, because if you're worrying about the Bank of England, you're going to get hit in the face. And so it's a very, very good way of forcing yourself to say, actually, okay, that's work and that's separate. And now here's something different. It's very good exercise. It's also very good fun. 
that for me is a, is another way of of, of switching off. Uh, and then I suppose sort of the hybrid of the two is is skiing in the winter when I can. And obviously with the pandemic, I've not been able to do that. But because you're getting out into nature and you have to focus on what you're doing, that as well I find is a way of really switching off mentally and and being able to to relax. And I think that's what's really really important in this situation. I absolutely agree. Anything where you have to concentrate and focus on that one thing and it means you can't worry about all the things that might be happening in your office is so good. Paul, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today. I really feel as though I've learned so much. I'm going to give another shout out for your book, Profit and Prejudice, The Luddites of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. I really would urge our listeners to get a copy. Uh, Really fascinating And I'm going to see how all of this unfolds. I really want to embrace your positivity and hope that we're moving in the right direction in terms of prejudice and see over the next few years where we get to. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Women in Family Law podcast. Our theme music is Low Tide by Sam Hare, found on Spotify. Please visit our website, womeninfamilylaw.net, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WIFLaw, and follow, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts.